This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. I wanted to talk about something we came across that sounds pretty unique. It's teams in the Western Hockey League that have signed on to try a COVID-19 test that uses artificial intelligence. It's a fascinating new application for AI, and it kind of would be a game changer in terms of being able to quickly test large groups of people. But how does it work? That's what we want to know. So let's talk to the CEO of Light AI about all of that. Peter Whiteside joins us now. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. So tell me about this. How does this work? Uh, so uh, we've used thousands of cases of, of COVID positive and negative to train a artificial intelligence model. And we used images from cell phones. And so by taking a cell phone image, you capture the image, it goes into the cloud, and in four seconds it gives you your result, whether or not you are positive or negative. But what, so how, how does it decide that? So um, the machine learning looks into the back of your throat, um, or the image on the, from the back of your throat, and captures millions of different signatures that come with COVID, or bacterial infection, or viral, or normal. And it's able to differentiate. It's just the it's the pure power of AI. It's really really interesting. Okay, so then if I were coming to a game at the yep. WHL, what what would I have to do to take this test? So uh, you download an app. Um, we're actually using it with the players right now, and and the support staff. And then what they do is they they download an app. Uh, it walks into a questionnaire. They capture a picture of the throat. It goes up into into the uh, into the cloud. And in a clinical approved setting, they'd get a result. So they just so they use their phone to take a picture. Yeah, that's correct. It's a, it's it's been built off of a smartphone, uh, uh, um, like a camera. Uh, yeah, camera. Yeah. So how accurate is this test? So uh, over the last year, we've been participating with LabCorp and UCLA and several other institutions, uh, collecting thousands and thousands of cases and. Um, our trials uh, down there are showing that we're, we're as competitive to that of the rapid antigen tests that are existing in the market. So how come this hasn't had more widespread use at this point? Is it because you've still been testing? Yeah. Um, artificial intelligence is built off of uh, enormous databases, so you have to collect a lot of data, uh, whereas in these, these rapid tests, they, they may have had 100 or 200 patients. We're, we're using thousands and thousands of patient data. How quickly does it return as a result? Uh, around four to ten seconds. Four to ten seconds? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, obviously, this would have applications, though, Peter, beyond just COVID-19, wouldn't it? Yeah. We, we actually started off um, uh, using it to, or de- developing an algorithm to differentiate between bacterial uh, strep throat and viral infection to help manage the misuse of antibiotics. Uh, we... Uh, we're starting our FDA trial in April of last year, and COVID came in and stopped the trial. So we repurposed the algorithm to look at COVID. So, but has it taken you all that time, like a whole year or two, as you say, collect the data on COVID? Yeah, you know, it, it's a long process to go through ethics and, and partner with these these bigger companies and, and institutions. So it's not uh, doesn't happen instantaneously. We've been collecting uh, strep patients for the last five years. Are you nervous about this this trial in the, using it with the Western Hockey League? No, no. I think I think this is a, it's a wonderful uh, Canadian uh, invention using Canadian content to demonstrate that it can differentiate between COVID 
positive and negative. We've 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 had a lot of data go through our algorithm, and it's looking really positive to date. Okay, so then what happens next? You're using it here. What yeah. what after that? So uh, in parallel, we are uh, um, applying to. Uh, submit our uh, emergency use application in the FDA and Health Canada. Okay. And once it's approved, uh, we'll probably have a partner because there's, we were finding that there's thousands and thousands of people who use this uh, an hour um, in our trials, so we, we, need a, we need a partner with a big uh, um, cloud engine. Right. That's going to be a big deal. Do you know who that's going yep. to be? Uh, no, we're just starting the process this week, actually. Okay, so um, you said yeah. You said you um, you've also gone for FDA approval on this. Does that mean it's going to be used in the United States? Yeah, we, we we've applied for we've done a pre submission for the emergency use of the FDA, and we're now formalizing the the bigger uh, or the 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 uh, real submission. So you know, this is so fascinating to me, Peter, because you said you guys turned on a dime, right? When COVID came along, that seems to be the case for so many businesses out there. Uh, how competitive has that environment been in trying to make advances with COVID-19? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of activity in the science community. Um, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, turning on a dime was not that easy, but uh, you either sit and incubate and wait until you can restart or you, you make lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> That's what you've been trying to do. Okay, yeah. so when does this get underway, this use in the Western Hockey League? Uh, so we're already into our second week now. Um, in out of an eight-week uh, 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 season, and uh, every Wednesday we collect PCR data from the players and the image, and we compare the two. And how's it been going? Uh, you know, it's been really exceptional. The big question was uh, how easy it is is it for these players to take a picture of your throat? Um, and uh, so far, uh, we're well over ninety ninety-nine percent accurate in good pictures. Okay, but that's the problem: is the good pictures. Yeah, you have, to, you have to be able to take a picture of your throat with your camera, and, and it's quite easy. It's actually, uh, we've been in a lot of pediatric centers, and, and the individuals are taking better, better pictures than the clinicians. So it's, there's a, a mechanism that teaches people how to op- open their mouth properly when they look at it themselves. That's, even the app is going to teach people how to do that? That's correct. So will, does the app tell you that if you, okay, that picture wasn't good enough, try again? Yeah, there's a machine learning component in there that, captures, helps you capture the optimal picture and tells you if you've ca- captured a good one. And so the, uh, so far the hockey players on one try have been about 99.8% and have collected perfect images. That's pretty good. So do you have, have you been, had reached out to by other sports leagues or anything like that? Um, no, I think, I think our main focus should be to, uh, to get through the regulatory process and we'll expand after that. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about it. Peter, thanks so much yep. for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's Peter Whiteside. He's the CEO of a company called Light AI. And this technology is being used in the Western Hockey League. So teams have signed on to try this. It's a COVID-19 test that uses artificial intelligence. So fascinating that they the app trains you to take a picture of the back of your throat and within five seconds can tell you whether because of the bacteria, whatever that sees in the back of your throat, whether you have COVID-19. Boy, is that ever interesting. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the speculation and vacancy tax, something that was brought in under former Finance Minister Carol James. If you look at the polling, it remains 
fairly popular, right? 70% of people or so between 70 and 80% say that they thought this was a good idea. But now there are some unintended consequences of it. I find this next story so incredibly strange that this could this could happen. It just seems so wrong. This is the restaurant Las Margaritas in Kitsilano. I mean, everybody knows it, right? Found out that they're going to have to pay an extra six thousand dollars last year because they are being charged the you know vacancy tax on the airspace above their restaurant where there is no building but they are being taxed on the potential for there being you know that space being used so how many other businesses is this happening to because it sounds outrageous joining us now to talk more about this is annie dormouth from the canadian federation of independent business annie thank you for joining us Thanks so much for having CFIB on the show. Well, this sounds so odd. Have you heard of this happening in other jurisdictions? No, definitely not. And uh, I'm actually the Provincial Affairs Director in, in Alberta here, and this is definitely something that is not in the province of Alberta, which, again, is just one province over from B.C. So definitely quite strange. And as you said, this is a pretty nonsensical um, thing that the provincial government has brought in, that now business owners, um, in some cases, who may be renting or leasing and have really no control over what is above um, their space of their of where their business is is now going to be saddled with an entirely new tax in the form of the spe- speculation vacancy tax. And for some business owners, uh, like the case, um, it can amount to an additional six thousand dollars at a time when small businesses are very much struggling. It was just a couple days ago where the province brought in new restrictions on uh, the hospitality and uh, fitness industry. And definitely such a strange time uh, to be bringing in an entirely new tax on small businesses. Now, this is uh, not a lot of businesses are impacted by this, but still for the ones that are, this just seems ridiculous because there is no building above them uh, for them to be charged on. What do you think should be done here? Well, definitely, I think the BC government really needs to show support for for business for the business community and reverse this decision uh, to apply the SBT to business owners. Um, you know, especially those ones that have the split amendment, uh, you know, split assessment on their property. And and that is one thing that needs to be done. We're a couple, you know, a couple weeks away from the BC government unveiling its budget. I think showing a strong sort, you know, showing support for the business community by reversing this decision is something that needs to happen immediately. Now, I know that uh, like when it comes to property taxes, there is this idea that like some places are taxed on the potential, right, for a business? That is correct. So what we understand what has happened here is that businesses who basically won in court to get the residential rate for basically the tax above their property, um, those that are at the residential rate for the air above their property even though they're taxed at the commercial rate for the actual physical um, property that they, they have, those businesses are now being saddled with the SBT because with the stroke of a pen here, um, the BC government has decided, oh, because you're taxed at the residential rate, that means for the air above your property, that means then the SBT can, can apply to you as well. So this is, again, where we need some clarification from the government and basically reverse whatever decision has, has happened here I know that there is, um, you know, a bit of a, 
you know, a bit of a couple year time frame for when, you know, this would be kind of grandfathered in and provided exemptions. But obviously now, since since small businesses have been very much hard hard hit by the impacts of the pandemic, are nowhere near to making back, you know, normal revenues for this time of year. It is something that needs to, you know, at least for on a temporary basis, have another year long exemption for these business owners. And then again, look at other solutions to maybe just not have the SVT apply to commercial business owners at all. It just seems so crazy. All right, Andy, thanks so much for your time on that this morning. You're welcome. That's Annie Dormuth, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business uh, Western Regional Director there, talking about this idea, like, I, I find it bizarre just in general, this idea of when you apply property tax to empty space because you're taxing people on the potential for that space as opposed to what that space actually is. But now this little known area that some businesses are being hit with the BC speculation and vacancy tax, not city of Vancouver empty homes tax. It's the provincial one for the uh, residential tax rate that they are paying the empty space above their buildings. So bizarre, right? Las Margaritas and Kitsilano is the high profile example of this. We'll see if the provincial government makes a move to perhaps, um, you know, grandfather them in, maybe grant that exemption on this because this doesn't seem to be a good time to be hitting businesses like that. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about exploration, shall we? I mean, we tend to think that every corner of the globe has been explored, but that is not the case when we get underneath the water. There are huge amounts of our oceans that we still haven't seen before, especially when you get down deep. Well, there's a robotics company in Saanich that is designing autonomous boats that might actually be able to go where no one has been able to before. Joining us now to talk more about that is Colin Angus, the Chief Technology Officer at Open Ocean Robotics. Colin, thanks for being here. Good morning, and uh, yeah, thank you for having me on your show. This is very exciting to talk about. So tell me about what you're designing. So what they are is uh, autonomous boats, which um, can head out to sea out in the middle of the ocean, and essentially, they're platforms that can uh, you can put sensors on, and they can capture data of any type that uh, that can be uh, captured with sensors. So things like uh, ocean floor mapping. I'm Kimbo with your funny 10:40 a.m. traffic in Burnaby. Uh, Police uh, issuing a ticket uh, on Highway One westbound before Sprott on the right but, uh, shoulder, yeah, but westbound traffic um, backed up before Kensington uh, Avenue. And Surrey train signal arms not working on properly on King George there. south of 72nd sure Avenue as traffic backed up both ways. The Love You by Shoppers Drug Mart program is committed to advancing women's health. I know. I don't know what's going on with that. Hold on one sec. Cloudy with showers today, a high of 7 degrees. Currently, we're sitting at 7 degrees. Let's keep trying that now, shall we, Colin? Okay. Yeah, Yeah. let us know about this. It sounds exciting. Yeah, yeah. So so there um, is an interesting way to go out and uh, gather data. And basically, it's very expensive. Um, if you are a researcher and uh, or, or the military and you want to gather any kind of data offshore, just because it's a very formidable, difficult place to get onto. It's, uh, ships are expensive. Uh, it's also dangerous. So this is a much safer way. And, uh, of course, uh, much less in the way of greenhouse gases being emitted to go out and um, do the research that's uh, currently being done. And so our boats are very small. They're 11 feet in length. And they can um, they can go up for months at a time, and basically no, any kind of weather they can they can be in. They can be out in hurricanes. Uh, it's just fine for them. So so uh, and they're solar powered. So they just will keep going and going and going, um, doing whatever task they've uh, they've been tasked with. And the, the the vessels are controlled from shore. So they're a combination of autonomous. They have autonomous uh, 
uh, collision avoidance scene uh, with a remote uh, operator to make sure everything's going well. And so you always have that oversight over them. Tell me how this started, though, because why is this newer than what everybody else has been doing? So, yeah, we're, basically, it's, it's like any autonomous technologies. It's all kind of a new thing right now. We hear about autonomous cars and huge potential there. Um, as we know, cars aren't yet fully autonomous. Yeah, technology is certainly going, uh, moving very quickly. Um, and when they are fully autonomous, you can just imagine how it's going to transform our roads. Um, and it's the same in the ocean. Uh, we just don't hear as much about the ocean because we're, we're not there. Most people are, you know, on land somewhere. And uh, so you've got uh, the, the realm of autonomy is moving forward very quickly. And so we're uh, one of those companies at the forefront developing, um, you know, the autonomous collision avoidance technologies, the vessels. And basically, there's no people going in these boats. They're completely uncrewed. And so they just go out there and then they do the work that currently costs a fortune. I mean, you pay anywhere between ten and $80,000 a day to um, charter uh, a vessel that can, uh, that can has the capabilities to go offshore with crew currently. So no if you're kidding. a whale researcher... Oh, go on. Yeah. I was going to say, though, like, how did you get started in doing this? Because for a lot of people, this is a passion project, right? Like, you get so, you get fascinated by this at a young age, and you want to go study it. Yeah, well, in a way, it is a passion project. I guess my, my wife, Julie, and I, um, I guess everything we do it ultimately stems from sort of our passion. Our, our, our background is uh, adventuring, exploring. Uh, and, and one of the early um, sort of things that got us uh, interested in this was, was when we rode across the Atlantic Ocean uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, we rode from Portugal to North America. It took us five months, just the two of us in a little rowboat. And uh, we were very unlucky. We got hit by two hurricanes on that crossing. And it made us realize, um, you know, just how powerful the ocean is but also that it's not always a good place for humans to be. And uh, it was, that was sort of one of the times we started thinking, you know, maybe, uh, you know, for research or any kind of uh, um, surveillance that's going on in the ocean, there's an easier way of doing it that doesn't put people in harm's way. Right. So, and what are, why hasn't somebody thought of that before? Well, there are other co- companies doing this. So um, there is, uh, there's none in Canada. We're the only Canadian uh, company that's creating autonomous vessels, which is great because Canada has more shoreline than any country in the world, including Russia. And, of course, we have limited resources to monitor our shorelines. Um, but, uh, yeah, in the U.S., as you know, there's so much innovation going on down there. There's a, a few different startups. One is owned by Boeing. Um, the other is it's called um, uh, Sail Drone, and they create an t- autonomous sailboat. So there are a few other companies out there doing this, but they're all kind of, you know, developing the technology. It's all, you know, new territory pushing uh, forward in different frontiers. Right. Do you have a dream location that you would like to explore that you really want to send this to? Um, well, we may actually be doing that very soon. So Hawaii, of course, comes to mind because we would actually be there monitoring it. And uh, so we may be doing a project which is going to be um, uh, monitoring uh, uh, protected, uh, protected areas from illegal fishing. Uh, so that'll be in sort of the outlying uh, islands of Hawaii, which uh, to be, it'll, it'll be quite something to be able to monitor it. We, we, our boat has 360-degree cameras, and uh, we relay the uh, imagery uh, back to the ground station. So it'll almost be like uh, like being in the warm uh, warm waters of Hawaii. We can only dream, right? We can only mm-hmm. dream. Colin, thanks so much yeah. for that. Uh, it's been a huge pleasure. All right, you take care now. You too. That's Thank Colin you. Angus, the Chief Technology Officer at a company called Open Ocean Robotics, about all the possibilities that they are working on. They're from Saanich, and they're designing autonomous boats that could be able to go where nobody has ever gone before. 
This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we were talking today about our frustrations, Vaughn and I were, uh, about the frustrations with not hearing enough from officials here in BC about being stricter in our province. And that's a concern because we know we have a variant problem. It seems like cases are out of control. We've got all these problems. People aren't paying attention to the restrictions. But in Ontario, it's a different story. Sounds like they're going to hear something new and big today, as a matter of fact. Joining us is Travis Donraj, Global News, Queen's Park Bureau Chief. Good morning, Travis. Good morning to you. So what do you know about what's happening today? So, listen, there's going to be a, another stay-at-home order that the Premier will be announcing at 2 o'clock this afternoon Eastern Time uh, at Queen's Park, the legislature here in Ontario. Uh, and non-essential businesses are going to be shut down province-wide. Uh, essential stores, big box stores, are going to be limited to essential aisles as well. Uh, and so there's a slew of regulations that are coming into place here. And this is because we are seeing ICU capacity uh, at record highs. We're seeing, uh, you know, a spread of the variant. And there's a lot of concern uh, about that. Yesterday here in Toronto, uh, the public health officer, the local uh, public health officer, uh, issued what's called a Section 22 order. That's basically taking things into the city's hands and determining that schools were going to shut down. That's something that Peel Region, that's Brampton, Mississauga, Caledon, did uh, over the weekend. So schools were shut down uh, on on Tuesday as well. So we're seeing a lot of regulations come into place in Ontario, and it's all an attempt to get things under control as best we can right now with the situation being what it is. Right. So, Travis, and what changed? Because hearing from Premier Ford yesterday didn't sound like these restrictions were coming, and now all of a sudden today there's word that these restrictions are coming. Well, I think, so So, what happened last week was that there were uh, new restrictions that were put into place. Uh, you know, the, essentially there was a lockdown uh, across the province, but there was no stay-at-home order. And then what happened over the course of the weekend was that, you know, a couple of medical officers of health from Toronto, from Peel Region and Ottawa came together. They sent a letter to Ontario's chief medical officer saying, the measures that we have right now, they need to be stronger. They, there needs to be a stay-at-home order like we saw a couple of months ago, uh, and, and we need to you know, do this for longer. And I think the government realized uh, over the past couple of days that perhaps they're right. The Premier also talked about some videos that were surfacing on social media throughout the weekend of you know, malls that were opened up. And a lot of people were criticizing, saying, well, how is it essential that I, I can go to Gucci or Fendi in the mall to pick up a bag? Um, <laughs> when barbershops are closed, patios are closed down, and, and it didn't make a lot of sense to people. And the Premier expressed some frustration about those videos, about folks going to malls and congregating. But uh, ultimately, the government made the decision to do that. So I think that there was a realization, okay, this is a bit out of a hand, and we have to try to put some more measures in place as quickly as possible. All right, so that does sound like it's going to be pretty strict. So they're talking about all non-essential retail, too? All non-essential retail will be shut down, and it will be curbside pickup only. Uh, and then in the big box stores like Costco and Walmart, etc., what we are hearing uh, is that they are going to be limited to essential aisles, which creates a bit of a problem. We've seen this in other provinces before because, you know, you've got aisles that are cordoned off, and there are some big box stores where the merchandise is, is mixed. So that's going to be a bit of a challenge for some of the stores that have to kind of recalibrate things and how folks can get through with some areas cordoned off and some some not. So I will I will preface this all, this whole conversation with saying that 
Cabinet is meeting here in Ontario in about half an hour again to finalize everything. And mm-hmm. we've seen, you know, sometimes there, there are some last-minute changes to things. But the stay-at-home order, uh, that was firm as of the meeting last night, which went fairly late. The, that Cabinet meeting last night went until about 11 o'clock. All right. Sounds like you're going to have a busy day. Travis, thanks so much for your time. Thanks. Appreciate it. Travis Dunraj, who's a Global News Queen's Park Bureau Chief in Toronto. They're talking about Ontario uh, getting some pretty tough restrictions in the next few hours, it sounds like, as he pointed out a press conference. It is 11-hour time. They're talking a four-week stay-at-home order, the closure of all non-essential retail, like everything, essentially, uh, and some, a lot of schools that went back to online learning in Ontario this week as well because they've got a huge variant problem. Very similar. Even Dr. Henry said Ontario is about a month ahead of BC and they're doing all this. So why aren't we doing more? This is Mornings with Simi. Well, they're certainly worried about schools and other jurisdictions, places in Ontario that are going to online learning only because of the rising number of cases, particularly the variant I mean, that is the case for us here as well, but we're not seeing the same kind of uh, closure when it comes to these schools. Why not? Because the Surrey District Parents Advisory Council would certainly like to see it. Joining us for more on that now is Ronnie Sangara, the director of the Surrey District Parents Advisory Council. Ronnie, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Cindy. Good morning to your listeners. Now, how are parents feeling these days? Well, I think we, uh, we're hearing from most parents that are very anxious. I think the anxiety has been there for several months. Um, even when the school was reopened, I think parents were still feeling anxious. And now I think with the new variant um, going to our schools, parents' anxiety levels have right. gone up quite a bit. And the stress is, is, the stress is there every day, I think, um, for them. So, Ronnie, I can imagine parents, as you were saying, very concerned right now. How do you feel about the messages that you've been hearing from the health officials on this? Well, I think um, most parents, I think, are feeling that the exposure letters, I mean, we've always said that the communication is a little bit lacking in how fast we're getting our, our, our news from them, from them. But, you know, going back to schools, I think majority of parents want schools open. I think we can all agree with that, that students should be in schools. Um, it's best for them mentally and and physically and emotionally. But, you know, some parents are saying, well, we're in a pandemic. And, you know, being in school on an, in a normal way would be fine. But during a pandemic, we need to look at it differently. So I think that's where some parents are coming from, where they're saying that, you know what, maybe we do in hotspots. You know, again, we're not right. talking with the the entire province because, you know, what's happening in, in the north isn't really happening down here and what's happening here isn't necessarily happening in, in other places like the Okanagan. Um, so I think that, you know, if we're looking at different hotspots or different districts, and Surrey's always been a hotspot um, since this pandemic has started and some parents in Surrey are have been concerned for a long time that um, their schools are been getting many exposure letters because right now, um, if you look at the Surrey School District um, website, they have almost 52 active exposure um, schools in, right. in in schools right now. And that's a scary so situation. It's a very scary situation for parent for for parents and students who are at these schools. Um, and, you know, and we're hearing from those parents and we're also hearing from different teachers as well that, you know what, it, it's still scary. And, and 
some parents are not sending their kids to school. So they're not doing the hybrid learning because they didn't get a chance to get into it. But, you know, they got to a point where there were just too many exposure letters or too many exposures at their at their school, at their child's school, that they've just kept them at home. And they're trying to do the best they can with that. What are you seeing, Ronnie, as well, in the community, right? There's been lots of concern. Dr. Henry said it yesterday about too much social gathering going on. What, like, what have you seen? Yeah, I think that, you know what, we, we are all trying to do our best. I mean, this is over a year into this pandemic, and we're trying to keep our kids healthy, mentally healthy as well. Um, and we know that not everyone is following the rules. But, you know, th- that being said, the Surrey is, is a hot spot because we have, we have lots of people working on the front lines. Um, we also live in a very dense community, like some of these communities have a lot of townhomes and a lot of um, close close homes. Um, so there's a lot more people living in there. All, there's also, you have to look at schools are, you know, some schools are over the limit. Um, some schools are bigger yeah. elementary schools than normal schools. High schools have a lot more, they're overcrowded. So then, you know, it all comes back to like, there's way more students that are there that shouldn't be there, right? So what what would you tell officials to do now? Like, what do you think needs to be done, in particular for the Surrey School District? I think we're hearing from parents, we're hearing from parents that schools just need to be a safer place. Same thing they've been asking for months and months, where, you know, better ventilation systems. They want their kids to not be sitting on round tables, or they don't want their kids to be sitting so close together. Um, hand washing stations in portables. Um, they want maybe just thinking outside the box, maybe being outside. I know that we've been hearing from some, some parents saying that maybe, you know, now that the spring and summer are coming, maybe they can do more outdoor classes so that the kids are outside more. Um, you know, and it's just, it, I think that parents are just, uh, parents are tired too. We're yeah. just trying to keep things going. And, you know, we're looking at our kids who, are, even when they are at school at this time through this pandemic, they're going through a lot of mental health issues. Um, you know, try try being a child in school and being like, okay, make sure you keep your mask on. Make sure you wash your hands all the time. Make sure you're sanitizing. That's a lot uh, to be putting on, on children at, the, at this time. So do you feel like more needs to be put on, you know, adults in this situation to fix it for the kids? I, th- I think what we're hearing from, from parents is that, you know, that the the ministry and Fraser Health, and they all need to have all these safety protocols in place for their children so that they, they feel safe sending their children to school. So, you know, the biggest things we're hearing right now is, like, at some schools, why there's round tables? Why is there, you know, three or four kids sitting on a round table facing each other? Um, you know, why can't we have it where there's more... Um, the cohorts are better managed when we're outside because if they're cohorts in school, in in the classroom, those cohorts are then being with other students outside. We've also heard some parents saying, well, you know, with with the government having a different tier system, and we've heard this from teachers as well, is that when are they going to put it into stage three where, you know, if parents want to keep their children at home and and provide online learning for them, um, and that would reduce the class sizes. And maybe that would reduce the exposures uh, at school. Right. So I think that there isn't necessarily one right answer for everything. I think all parents 
you know, agree that, yeah, schools need to be open for, for, for education for many, many reasons. But, you know, different parents have different issues at, at their schools and, and they just want, they, at the end of the day, they just want their schools to be safe so that they feel, um, they feel that they're doing the right thing by sending them in. All right, Ronnie, thank you so much for your time this morning and best of luck. Thank you so much for having me. That's Ronnie Sangara, director of the Surrey District Parents Advisory Council, echoing the call that we've heard from teachers, particularly in Surrey, that, you know what, like other jurisdictions, they're shutting down the schools and moving things online. And they, we've, we've tried to push it through here in BC, but perhaps in some areas we need to look at that again. So should Surrey schools definitely be considered for that? This is Mornings with Simi. You know, when the pandemic first began, boy, were we ever eager to close down the border. And all throughout, I think there has been this feeling of, yep, keep it closed, keep it closed until we have things under control. Yeah, it sounds like the situation might be reversed, though, because they are administering vaccines south of the border at a mind-boggling rate. Let's talk about their progress. Joining us now is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. How is this effort going? Look, it is, uh, it's a remarkable comeback for the country that was hit, or if one of the countries that was hit hardest, uh, in the pandemic early last year that continued through 2020. And here we are now heading into a weekend where we are anticipating that nearly 50% of adult Americans will have at least one dose. Uh, you know, it's difficult to hear for Canadians who are kind of suffering through a sluggish vaccine program. But at the end of the day, the U.S. has this kind of massive vaccine ability with this, uh, just kind of incredibly, you know, uh, uh, deep pocket and, and biomedical research, you know, domestically, uh, that they're able to get these kind of numbers. So are they are they still vaccinating at a rate of something like three million people per day? It's roughly three million a day. And over the weekend, we heard the president announce yesterday that I believe it was on Saturday, the U.S. was able to administer four million doses. So, I mean, this is really uh, it's a remarkable, you know, uh, uh, round of speed for the president who had originally promised 100 million shots in his first 100 days. That was obviously accomplished, you know, 60 days earlier. Uh, he changed that towards 200 million, well on the way to accomplishing that goal as well. Uh, you know, we do have to give or at least uh, uh, the country does still give credit to the former administration for getting the vaccine vaccine program in place, but it really has kind of taken off under President Biden. Okay, but that hasn't slowed down the number of cases that they're still getting in certain states. Is that right? Yeah, and there's a disagreement right now between doctors in the U.S., or at least amongst epidemiologists, as to whether the U.S. is about to enter a fourth wave. And that's because we're seeing through New York, through New Jersey, Pennsylvania, but really through Michigan, this massive uptick in numbers where ICU space is once again uh, running at capacity in certain uh, areas, especially in Michigan, through Lansing and through Detroit, uh, where case numbers are eight, 9,000 per day. And we're also seeing an uptick down in the south that had been doing fairly well over the last couple of weeks, and that includes Florida. So there is concern here uh, that, you know, the race between vaccine and variant and vaccine and spread uh, is still neck and neck. Right. So they're still getting cases uh, and yet everything seems to be opening back up. I mean, they're, they're putting people in the stands for sports events. Yeah, I mean, look, that was that was that was a, a big sight to see in Arlington, Texas, when the Texas Rangers opened up uh, their series. Uh, and that's the, the largest mass gathering event that the United States has seen since this pandemic started to shut things down. And look, this is not something new. We've seen states rolling back their restrictions, whether it's Florida, whether it's Texas, whether they even had restrictions in place in the first place. And that's why you heard the president yesterday uh, yesterday say, look, the end of the tunnel is here, but we're not there yet. Just because you see people getting vaccines doesn't mean the country isn't vulnerable anymore. 
more. 20% may be fully vaccinated. 80% are still at risk. And with these variants rolling around and with states not requiring people to wear masks or letting people inside, you do run the risk, according to doctors here, of seeing these numbers continue to increase before they decrease. Right. And so are they having any problems getting people to take the vaccine? That is a growing problem here as well. And at the beginning of the kind of vaccine effort, there was hesitancy amongst uh, 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 Americans of color, the black Americans, brown Americans. Uh, and whether it was hesitancy or whether it was just uh, in, uh, enable, uh, being unable to access the vaccines was one thing. We're now seeing that the growing number uh, of groups that are hesitant to take this vaccine are white evangelical Republicans. And that's because there has been so much politicization around not only the virus itself, but the vaccine. Uh, and that's why you see people like Republican uh, leader Mitch McConnell coming out saying, look, I got my vaccine. You need to get yours, too. That's the only way to get back to normal. A lot of the blame placed on former President Donald Trump. He did not do enough to round up and rally up Republicans to say, look, we made this vaccine. Let's take it. But he took the vaccine. He did take the vaccine, but there was no fanfare around it. Nobody saw him take it. There was questions as to whether the president actually did get it. Because remember, he made the announcement in January. Uh, but in order to get that vaccine while he was still in office, he would have had to get his first round in December because he was no longer the president after January uh, uh, 20th. So, you know, th there are questions as to, you know, why the president didn't do more at the time to garner support for the vaccine that he wanted to take the credit for. Okay, so it sounds like, though, Reggie, even though we hear the, the positive side of it, there's still a long ways to go in the United States. Yeah, look, it's 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 remarkable that 20 percent of a country of 350 million have been fully vaccinated, but it is going to take time. The president has made an announcement uh, to all states to open up eligibility to anyone over 18 by April 19th as a way to speed things up, to give people uh, a July 4th long weekend, Independence Day in the United States, without any kind of fears or hesitations if they're around uh, family members. But doctors say, look, it's going to take time to get to herd immunity. You need 75 or 80 percent. Being at 20 percent right now is cause for celebration, but it's not cause to let down your guards. And that's why there is fear with places like Michigan showing this massive increase in cases. Is there a fear that's going to continue to, uh, to spread across the country, especially with this new quote unquote double mutant that showed up from Ooh. India in California? Is there a risk that that poses, you know, an additional threat or puts more pressure on the vaccine program? Right. All right, Reggie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Isn't it interesting how, like, when from our perspective, we look down there and we go, oh, they're doing an amazing job vaccinating people. And yet that breeds its own problems, right? You can see how even if people in the States read the news, oh, I don't need to be vaccinated because everybody else is getting vaccinated. And, oh, look, things are opening up and I don't have to worry about this anymore. So they're actually running against those problems at the same time, whereas we feel like we are still way back there, right? They're going to, they're thinking about going to sporting events in July 4th weekend. We are thinking about restrictions for at least the next, you know, six weeks or so. Ontario this morning expected to announce a further like lockdown situation, a stay at home order for the next four weeks. What will that mean here in BC? Lots of questions for health officials. Still no real answers on that. They seem to be staying pat.